Section 8 of Invisible Links This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander Invisible Links by Selma Lagerlöf Translated by Pauline Bancroft Flack The King's Grave, Part 3 Tönne and Geoffrid lived happily for many years. They earned a good reputation. They are good, people said. See how they stand by one another. See how they work together. See how one cannot live apart from the other. Tönne grew stronger, more enduring, and less heavy-witted every day. Geoffrid seemed to have made a whole man of him. Almost always he let her rule but he also understood how to carry out his own will with tenacious obstinacy. Jests and merriment followed Geoffrid wherever she went. Her clothes became more vivid the older she grew. Her whole face was bright red, but in Turner's eyes she was beautiful. They were not so poor as many others of their class. They ate butter with their porridge and mixed neither bran nor bark in their bread. Myrtle ale foamed in their tankards. Their flocks of sheep and goats increased so quickly that they could allow themselves meat. Tönne once worked for a peasant in the valley. The latter, who saw how he and his wife worked together with great gaiety, thought like many another, See, these are good people. The peasant had lately lost his wife, and she had left behind her a child six months old. He asked Tönne and Geoffrey to take his son as a foster child. "'The child is very dear to me,' he said. "'Therefore I give it to you, for you are good people.' They had no children of their own, so that it seemed very fitting for them to take it. They accepted it, too, without hesitation. They thought it would be to their advantage to bring up a peasant's child besides which they expected to be cheered in their old age by their foster-son. But the child did not live to grow up with them. Before the year was out, it was dead. It was said by many that it was the fault of the foster-parents, for the child had been unusually strong before it came to them. By that no one meant, however, that they had killed it intentionally, but rather that they had undertaken something beyond their powers. They had not had sense or love enough to give it the care it needed. They were accustomed only to think of themselves and to look out for themselves. They had no time to care for a child. They wished to go together to their work every day and to sleep a quiet sleep at night. They thought that the child drank too much of their good milk and did not allow him as much as themselves. They had no idea that they were treating the boy badly. They thought that they were just as tender to him as parents generally are. It seemed more to them as if their foster son had been a punishment and a torment. They did not mourn him when he died. Women usually enjoy nothing better than to take care of a child, but Geoffrey had a husband whom she often had to care for like a mother, so that she desired no one else. They also loved to see their children's quick growth. 
but Geoffrey had pleasure enough in watching Tönne develop sense and manliness, in adorning and taking care of her house, in the increase of their flocks, and in the crops which they were raising below the moor. Geoffrey went to the peasant's farm and told him that the child was dead. Then the man said, I am like the man who puts cushions in his bed so soft that he sinks down to the hard bottom. I wish to care too well for my son, and look, now he is dead. And he was heartbroken. At his words, Geoffrey began to weep bitterly. Would to God that you had not left your son with us, she said. We were too poor. He could not get what he needed with us. That is not what I meant, answered the peasant. I believe that you have overindulged the child. But I will not accuse anyone, for over life and death God alone rules. Now I mean to celebrate the funeral of my only son with the same expense as if he had been full grown. And to the feast I invite both Tönne and you. By that you may know that I bear you no grudge. So Tönne and Geoffrey went to the funeral banquet. They were well treated, and no one said anything unfriendly to them. The women who had dressed the child's body had related that it had been miserably thin and had borne marks of great neglect. But that could easily come from sickness. No one wished to believe anything bad about the foster parents, for it was known that they were good people. Geoffrey wept a great deal during those days, especially when she heard the women tell how they had to wake and toil for their little children. She noticed, too, that the women at the funeral were continually talking of their children. Some rejoiced so in them that they never could stop telling of their questions and games. Geoffrey would have liked to have talked about Tönne, but most of them never spoke of their husbands. Late one evening, Geoffrey and Tönne came home from the festivities. They went straight to bed. But hardly had they fallen asleep before they were waked by a feeble crying. It is the child, they thought, still half asleep, and were angry at being disturbed. But suddenly both of them sat right up in the bed. The child was dead. Where did that crying come from? When they were quite awake, they heard nothing. But as soon as they began to drop off to sleep, they heard it. Little tottering feet sounded on the stone threshold outside the house. A little hand groped for the door, and when it could not open it, the child crept crying and feeling along the wall until it stopped just outside where they were sleeping. As soon as they spoke or sat up, they perceived nothing, but when they tried to sleep, they distinctly heard the uncertain steps and the suppressed sobbings. That which they had not wished to believe, but which seemed a possibility during these last days, now became a certainty. They felt that they had killed the child. Why otherwise should it have the power to haunt them? From that night all happiness left them. They lived in constant fear of the ghost. By day they had some peace, but at night they were so disturbed by the child's weeping and choking sobs that they did not dare to sleep alone. Geoffrey often went long distances to get someone to stop overnight in their house. If there was any stranger there, it was quiet, 
but as soon as they were alone they heard the child. One night, when they had found no one to keep them company and could not sleep for the child, Jofrid got up from her bed. You sleep, Tönne, she said. If I keep awake, we will not hear anything. She went out and sat down on the doorstep, thinking of what they ought to do to get peace, for they could not go on living as things were. She wondered if confession and penance and mortification and repentance could relieve them from this heavy punishment. Then it happened that she raised her eyes and saw the same vision as once before from this place. The pile of stones had changed to a warrior. The night was quite dark, but still she could plainly see that old King Atle sat there and watched her. She saw him so well that she could distinguish the moss-grown bracelets on his wrists and could see how his legs were bound with crossed bands between which his calf muscles swelled. This time she was not afraid of the old man. He seemed to be a friend and consoler in her unhappiness. He looked at her with pity, as if he wished to give her courage. Then she thought that the mighty warrior had once had his day, when he had overthrown hundreds of enemies there on the heath, and waded through the streams of blood that had poured between the clumps. What had he thought of one dead man, more or less? How much would the sight of children whose fathers he had killed have moved his heart of stone? Light as air would the burden of a child's death have rested on his conscience. And she heard his whisper, the same which the old stone-cold heathenism had whispered through all time. Why repent? The gods rule us. The fates spin the threads of life. Why shall the children of earth mourn, because they have done what immortal gods have forced them to do? Then Jufrid took courage and said to herself, How am I to blame, because the child died? It is God alone who decides. Nothing takes place without his will. And she thought that she could lay the ghost by putting all repentance from her. But now the door opened and Tönne came out. Jofrid, he said, it is in the house now. It came up and knocked on the edge of the bed and woke me. What shall we do, Jofrid? The child is dead, said Jofrid. You know that it is lying deep underground. All this is only dreams and imagination. She spoke hardly and coldly for she feared that Tönne would do something reckless, and thereby cause them misfortune. "'We must put an end to it,' said Tönne. Jofrid laughed dismally. "'What do you wish to do? God has sent this to us. Could he not have kept the child alive if he had chosen? He did not wish it, and now he persecutes us for its death. Tell me by what right he persecutes us.' She got her words from the old stone warrior, who sat dark and high on his pile. It seemed as if he suggested to her everything she answered, Tönne. We must acknowledge that we have neglected the child and do penance, said Tönne. Never will I suffer for what is not my fault, said Jofrid. Who wanted the child to die? Not I, 
Not I. What kind of penance will you do? You need all your strength for work. I have always tried with scourging, said Tönne. It is of no avail. You see, she said and laughed again. We must try something else, Tönne went on with persistent determination. We must confess. What do you want to tell God that he does not know? mocked Geoffrey. Does he not guide your thoughts, Tönne? What will you tell him? She thought that Tönne was stupid and obstinate. She had found him so in the beginning of their acquaintance, but since then she had not thought of it, but had loved him for his good heart. We will confess to the father, Geoffrid, and offer him compensation. What will you offer him? she asked. The house and the goats. He will certainly demand an enormous compensation for his only son. All that we possess would not be enough. We will give ourselves as slaves into his power, if he is not content with less. At these words Geoffrid was seized by cold despair, and she hated Tönner from the depth of her soul. Everything she would lose appeared so plainly to her. Freedom, for which her ancestors had ventured their lives, the house, her comforts, honor, and happiness. Mark my words, Tönner she said hoarsely, half-choked with pain, that the day you do that thing will be the day of my death. After that no more words were exchanged between them, but they remained sitting on the doorstep until the day came. Neither found a word to appease or to conciliate. Each felt fear and scorn of the other. The one measured the other by the standard of his own anger, and they found each other narrow-minded and bad-tempered. After that night, Geoffrid could not refrain from letting Tönne feel that he was her inferior. She let him understand in the presence of others that he was stupid, and helped him with his work so that he had to think how much stronger she was. She evidently wished to take away from him all rights as master of the house. Sometimes she pretended to be very lively, to distract him and to prevent him from brooding. He had not done anything to carry out his plan, but she did not believe that he had given it up. During this time Tönne became more and more as he was before his marriage. He grew thin and pale, silent and slow-witted. Geoffrey's despair increased each day for it seemed as if everything was to be taken from her. Her love for Tönne came back. However, when she saw him unhappy, what is any of it worth to me if Tönne is ruined, she thought. It is better to go into slavery with him than to see him die in freedom. End of Part 3 of The King's Grave From Invisible Links by Selma Lagerlöf Translated by Pauline Bancroft Flack, read by Lars Rolander.